Good morning. Picking up now in Matthew 13 from 24, going to finish off the rest of these parables of the kingdom. Let's just start with uh, with a word of prayer. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we come to you seeking to understand the sense of our Lord, your dear Son, as he gave us these parables. And we pray, Father, that we truly might respond, that we might get what he's talking about, and that each of us might take away at least something from this study that transforms our life in practice and that brings us closer to the image of your dear Son as he was in Jesus, and that we might eternally live with him and for him and for you. For his sake. Amen. So, 24. The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which sowed good seed in his field. Well, I suggest that this sower is the Lord Jesus, as we saw in the parable of the sower, just in the, the earlier part of this chapter, and the field is the world, and it's even then he talks about the field as his field, even though, as we'll see later in this chapter, he bought the field in his death. But he saw victory as if it had already, in essence, been achieved, and that it was already his field. And that's a little lesson for us straight away, to to live the kingdom life now as if that victory has been achieved and realized in us because it has been and we are to live uh, according to that status uh, which we have been given. Verse 25, while men slept, the the enemy came and sowed the weeds. Well, it could be translated when men slept, talking about after the death of the apostles, but I, I think that the idea really is that they should not have slept. And the servants were weak. 1 Thessalonians 5 and elsewhere emphasizes the Lord's teaching that we should not sleep, but we should be aware so that the thief doesn't come unexpectedly, etc. So I think this is a weakness in the Lord's servants, and because of that, the situation is as it is. But verse 26, the blade sprung up and brought forth fruit. And then the weeds did. Well, this continues from the sower parable in verse 7, where in the good ground, um, sorry, uh, not verse 7, this is the good ground of the uh, earlier parable, where the, the good seed does spring up and bring forth fruit. But the point is that this is an addition to the sower parable. And the Lord is saying, and by the way, you realize that on that good soil, that good seed that brought forth the fruit, it did so in the face of competition from weeds growing right next to it. That was sapping up all the moisture, etc., that, uh, that that, that good, good, uh, good plant needed. And so this is a very telling addition, because the Lord is saying, look, spirituality on the good ground is achieved in the face of discouragement from others growing next to you who are not sincere, all within the field, all next to you, within the church life, etc. And in reality, it is interpersonal difficulties with people who may well be in the weed category, although we can't categorize individuals like that, as the Lord explains, but it is interpersonal difficulties which lead to people losing their faith and becoming at least unfruitful. So many times we've seen this, have we not? 
that somebody has a fallout. It could be a divorce. It could be uh, an argument within the church about something or other. And they go off and become unfruitful, basically. And the point is that the good seed brings forth fruit with the, the weeds competing right next to them. That's the point. Well, there's a desire to gather them. Verse 28, and this is very often used in the Gospels about gathering to judgment. And of course the, the point is that some that we feel are obviously weeds are actually wheat. Now that's the point of the whole thing, that you cannot say to someone, hey you, out, because you don't know. And if they are wheat then you're going to be damned, you're going to be condemned, because you threw out somebody who was one of the Lord's people. Now all this is very strangely foreseen in 2 Samuel 23, 6 and 7. The sons of Belial shall be all of them as thorns thrust away, because they cannot be taken by hands, by human hands, but the man that shall touch them, and that's Jesus, must be fenced with iron on the staff of a spear, that's very much crucifixion, his crucifixion, and they shall be utterly burned with fire in the same place where Christ was fenced with iron. That is just outside Jerusalem, in Gehenna. So I think the point is that <clears throat> the tares, the weeds, can only be thrown out by the one who died on the cross. So if we think that we can judge others, we are effectively playing Christ. Playing God, playing Christ in the sense. And it is only those who have gone through crucifixion who can do that, and that is none of us. So they say, would you wish that we go uh, and, uh, and gather up the, uh, the, the, the weeds? <clears throat> and the Lord says, no, I'll send the reapers. And that is, I think, the element or an element of unreality in this story. That this householder has got two groups of servants. He's got this group of servants, and then he says, well, I've got another group who are the reapers. Well, that is not normally how it was. The same group of servants are working on the farm, doing the, the weeding and, and so forth. They are the same guys who are going to go and reap the harvest. But the Lord says, no, I got another category. Now, what is the point of that element of unreality? And I think it's this, that the servants had allowed the thing to happen in the first place because they had slept, because they'd been lazy. And therefore, the Lord is saying, because of that, uh, no, I'm not going to use you. He's going to use this other group of servants who he says represent the angels. Now, the other element of unreality is that he allows the weeds to grow. Because, obviously, they're taking up all the moisture from around the, the good plants. That doesn't make any sense. And I think that that is his way. He allows the whole situation to be in church life, whereby we do all grow next to each other, and you are growing next to weeds. It's as simple as that. Um, he allows that. And that, in the great paradox, is for our spiritual benefit. Now, time and again, 
time and again, church life has been broken up by people saying, we can't have that here. If that's what he believes, if that's how she lives out, um, yeah, there's exactly, doing exactly what is condemned here. And what are you doing? You are acting as judge and shall be condemned, and you are tearing up the wheat. Because you cannot judge, and that, that is the point. And also, the, you know, the argument is made, well, if you let these people remain within the church, then it's damaging to all of us. But that's exactly what the Lord is saying. That in this element of unreality in the story, the good fruit, the, the good plant, uh, still prospers, despite this very strange regime, if you like, of allowing the weeds to grow next to them. In the time of harvest, the Lord says, we'll sort this out. Incidentally, the suggestion then is that when the fruit is ready, then the harvest begins. Which is why I don't think there is a calendar date for the Lord's coming. And then he, in 31, he gives them another unlikely story. A story that's again got an element of unreality. He says the kingdom is like to a grain of mustard seed which a man took and sowed in his field. Now a grain, a kernel. You get the picture of this guy walking out into a field holding this one tiny seed which is actually pretty well of a weed because that's what a mustard bush was. It's, it was classified as a weed. And then he drops it in the middle of the field. Like this is really an unusual story. And it becomes so big that the uh, Mark 4.32 says uh, it, becomes into, it turns into a tree. Well, that's an element of unreality because the mustard bush is at the most a bush. It is not a tree. But it turns into a tree that has got branches. Well, they don't have great big branches where all the birds of the air can live. I think the connection is with the idea of that which looks like a, a weed. And the Lord is saying, well, actually, what can appear to be a weed can actually change, can turn into a tree. Because he's just said, oh yeah, you saw some weeds, so you're all scampering to pull them up. Well, now in the next story, he, he talks with this very strange uh, picture that he uses of, of a weed that turns into a tree. And actually a tree that represents Jesus himself and the kingdom of God, providing shelter for others. And of course, the other point is that from the micro, and that's the, the, the word he used, micro, uh, you get this megas, this, this huge big tree, that the, the growth is apparently out of all proportion. And so it is in the preaching of the gospel that what appears to be absolutely nothing, just, you know, a leaflet dropped on the floor, a, a flyer that, that's uh, just left lying around somewhere, just baptizing a person, just, you know, putting a person under water, just this, just that, from such tiny beginnings, a person can come to eternal life. This is what Paul calls, in 1 Corinthians 1, the foolishness of preaching. Now, God will work, and in the end, his word does not return void. 
And although it appears so insignificant, and I, I believe all of us have been discouraged in preaching by the sense of, look, what is the point? I stood on the street corner giving out flyers, and then I looked in the garbage uh, can uh, around the corner from where I was standing, and the majority of my leaflets had been thrown in there by the people I gave them to. What is the point? This all costs money, costs time. What's the point? This is a waste of time and effort. We all get that temptation uh, to think like that, but the point is that from the smallest, from the smallest beginnings, this great end comes. And then he balances his parable with a parable about women. And he does that very often. He was way ahead of his time. And he says that it's like yeast, it's like leaven, that was hid in, in, in flour. Well, we are to become a city that's set on a hill which cannot be hid, Matthew 5.14. And it's actually the rejected, in Matthew 25, who hide the talent of the gospel so that nobody can see it. So I think that the Lord is explaining here a little bit uh, to the disciples about why the, uh, the work of John the Baptist had not uh, brought forth the fruit that they expected, why his own ministry was not bringing forth fruit as they'd expected. And he's saying that what's happened is that it's been hidden when it should be uh, producing uh, fruit, it should be out in the open. Joseph uh, was a, a secret, Joseph of Arimathea, same word, was a secret or a hidden disciple, John 19.38. Because the whole context of these parables, as we looked out at the end of chapter 12, is the Lord explaining to his people why there was so little response, real response to his ministry, why John the Baptist's ministry had only produced a, a, tiny, a tiny little bit of response. Now, the treasure is hid uh, in the field, we're, we're, we're told. And I think that that, uh, that field is, that is, uh, is the world that is, that is bought by, by Jesus. So then, uh, back here, the, the wicked one comes and sows the... Uh, comes and sows the, the tares. And I, I, I suggest then that that wicked one is the, the Jewish opposition to, to Jesus. The tares are the children of the wicked one. This word has, has been used, wicked, um, several times in, in, uh, in Matthew 12 in the lead up to this parable calling them the evil ones, the evil generation, or wicked generation. And so the wicked one, I think, connects with the, uh, the Jewish religious opposition. Now he says that um, don't resist the evil one when you are hit on the cheek. Now to smite someone on the cheek was a synagogue punishment for uttering heresy. That's in Matthew 5.39. And the Lord says that when you are dealt with like that, don't resist that evil one. So the evil one there in Matthew 5.39 was the, the Jewish synagogue authorities. So I think the wicked one or the evil one here is the same. This is the, the Jewish opposition 
to the Lord's work. So again, he's trying to explain to the disciples why there has not been this response that they had hoped for. This is the work, he says, of the enemy. And that's the word he uses in Luke 19, 27, about the Jews who refuse the gospel. Bring forth those enemies of mine. So, I think that the disciples maybe had too exalted a view of Judaism and the synagogue system. And the Lord is trying to explain to them why the... Uh, why the whole thing, the whole program of John the Baptist and even himself has not worked out as he, as he planned, as they hoped. And he's saying it's because of this opposition that has come from Judaism itself and the lack of response, of spiritual response from the ordinary people who had received the word. And he now says, verse 39, that the harvest is at the end of the age. Well, earlier in Matthew 9, 37, 38, he sent the disciples out to reap the harvest. And yet now he says that the harvest is not now. It's at the end of the age. And you are not going to be the harvesters. He says in John 4, the fields are white to harvest and he sends them out to reap the harvest. But now, at this point in the ministry, where, as I suggested, when we looked at Matthew 12 at the end and the parable of the sower, the Lord has started to talk in parables. He's changed his view to Israel. He said, okay, I recognize that you are not responding to John the Baptist. You're not responding to me. Uh, I'm now uh, operating differently. I'm just focusing upon the 12 and the, the ministering women. I'm focusing on this tiny minority who have responded. And so I think he's rescheduling the whole thing. He had sent them out to reap the harvest, and now he says, you're the servants who didn't quite do your job because you went to sleep and allowed the tares, to, to the weeds to be sown, and you are not going to do the reaping. It'll be the angels. And the harvest is now not now. It's at the end of the age. So this is, I think, what happened um, time and again in God's purpose, that there was one, one possible uh, fulfillment uh, of the whole thing, and then this was delayed. This was then, that uh, the whole thing was rescheduled. And it would seem to be that the Lord will come in our lifetime, and we look forward to that, and we should live as if his coming is, is imminent. But just remember that it can also be rescheduled. And the bottom line of our hope is salvation in Christ, not, not, that Christ shall come in my lifetime. And a lot of disappointment and disillusion has arisen because of that. He that shall come will come, and will not ultimately tarry. But there, are, there is such a thing as reschedulement, and this is why there was this great disappointment in the first century, and so many turned away, I think, because they were so looking for the immediate fulfillment of all these things. So, as I say, he reschedules the thing. He sent them out as the reapers of the harvest earlier on, in John 4, uh, uh, Matthew 9, and now he's saying, no, it's not you. You're the servants. The reapers are the angels. The harvest is now not now. It's at the end of the age. And when he says that he will send forth his angels in 41, 
This is actually the word apostello. He will apostle his angels. And again, I think he's saying that the role of you people as apostles, as sent forth ones, has now been slightly changed in the sense that you will not be reaping. That is now the work of, of the angels. So then they will go and will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and them which do iniquity. Now the reference clearly is to people. And the basis then of condemnation, of uh, definition as one who does iniquity, is whether you offend others, all things that offend, that make others to stumble. And I think that that again has got to be given due weight. That the, the essence of sin is to make another to stumble. And this is why we must keep on analysing the import and the impact of our behaviour upon others. Is this making that person stumble or not? Because that is the essence. Now, of course, you can make someone stumble. We all, in some things, James says, cause others to stumble. Um, but you can repent. Peter, for example, was the, the, the one who wanted to cause Jesus to stumble. He says that to Peter in Matthew 16, 23. But you can repent of it. And I, I would mention again, that it is division, which in my experience is the cause of stumbling to so many babes in Christ and not just babes in Christ. And to cause that it is to cause others to stumble. That, that is just very, very clear, uh, very clear. Romans 16 verse 17 is clear uh, that those who cause division thereby cause others to stumble. And causing others to stumble is the very essence of those who do iniquity and those who shall be condemned. But the righteous, 43, verse 43, shall shine forth as the sun, ek lampo. And yet we are the lampo right now. We are to shine in a way which cannot be hid from men, Matthew 5, 15 and 16. And so our shining before men now is related to our eternally shining in the kingdom of God. And the allusion is clearly to Daniel 12, verse 3, that those who turn many to righteousness in this life, those who shine now, shall shine like the stars eternally. And the opposite is that those who cause others to stumble and are impenitent because of this um, shall not. So the, the, the tension is between those who make others stumble and those who shine the gospel to others. And so often it has worked out in church life that those who cause others to stumble are those who are in leadership positions and those who shine the gospel out are those who are bullied and excluded by the, the ones who are in power. 44. The gospel is like treasure that is hid in a field. Now, I think these parables that come on now are the Lord Jesus talking to himself as well as to us. Because the field is the world, verse 44, and who bought the world? Who bought the field? Well, it's the same word, First Corinthians 6, verse 20, you are bought with a price. And what was that price? The blood of Christ. 
So that's why Jesus talks about the field as being his field. The field belongs to the sower. It's his personal field. And when did he buy or redeem this field? The world, the field is the world, in his death on the cross. So he's talking about himself really here. Although, of course, the whole thing has got relevance to us. But he, he finds this treasure hid in the field, and so he pays the huge price to buy the field. <coughs> I think that explains the, the sense to which Christ died for the world's redemption, and yet not every human being shall be saved. He found us, the great treasure for him, in the field, and so he redeemed the field, the world, in order to get us. And so the fact that Christ died for the world's redemption does not mean that therefore every single human being in the world shall be saved. So then, Revelation 5 verse 9 we were redeemed or bought by Christ's blood out of, out of every tribe, language, people and nation. Again, this is the idea. The treasure, that's us, is hidden in the field. Now, as I said, the, the context of all these parables is Jesus trying to explain to the disciples about the, the, the lack of success of John's ministry and even of his own, and to justify the, the, the new approach that he has at the end of chapter 12 and so far in chapter 13, where he's saying to them, look guys, I'm focusing upon you. I'm sort of giving up with the Jewish world because they have rejected the message. And I think he's saying, look, yes, I, I'm dying for the world, the Jewish world in the first instance, but you, you are my treasure. You, you bunch of mixed up secular men with a few prostitutes and mixed up women hanging on the edge. You, guys, are my treasure. And I'm doing all this for you. I'm redeeming the world for you. Now, he finds this treasure. Here in the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord puts quite a bit of emphasis in Matthew 7 on us seeking and finding the way to life. But here, he says that he is looking for us, and he finds us. He found faith, he says, in a Gentile, but he didn't find that faith in Israel. Matthew 8, verse 10. He's the good shepherd, of course, finding the lost. So then, as has been said, God is in search of man, and yet we're also in search of God. And that is why when we find each other, when we find him, and we seek and find, and he, from heaven's perspective, seeks and finds us, there, there is a flash that, you know, can light up the cosmos, that when one person repents, all the angels of heaven rejoice. And that, that flash is because we are in search of, of God, and he is in search of us, and when we find each other, this, then, is that wonderful flash moment that, that lights up the cosmos. Now, how, do we, how are we to understand the fact that he hides? He hides and goes and buys the, uh, the field, and he hides the, the, the treasure anyway. I 
suggests that this part of the, the story is his explanation to them of his changed approach, that no longer is he appealing to all Israel. He's saying that he's done that in the end of chapter 12, chapter 13. Now he starts talking to them in parables, uh, and he's saying, look, I'm leaving them, I'm focusing upon you. I'm so happy, guys, that I found you. And he's, as it were, hiding them in, in the Jewish world. And for joy thereof, he goes and, uh, and, and redeems them. And I said that the, the redemption is clearly talking about his death. And in the run-up to his death, in John 15, 11, 17, verse 13, he talks about my joy. Not, not sort of happy, clappy, bubbly kind of giggly sort of happiness, not at all. Not at all, clearly. Uh, but he did this for joy. And his whole idea of his death was in order to redeem that treasure that he'd found. And I'm sure that he's saying, look, you guys are that treasure. But how mixed up they were, how little they understood, how weak was their faith. And yet, if that was what they meant to him, we therefore should be encouraged ourselves that we likewise give him so much joy with all our weakness of understanding, with all our infidelity to him. But our basic core commitment, as they had, you know, let us go that we might die with him. No, guys, I'm not dying right at the moment. Uh, you know, I will go with you to prison unto death, as, as Peter says. And all right, it was all in weakness, and he couldn't pull it through, but in the end, that's what he wanted. And that's, uh, he wanted to be like that, and the Lord saw that. And those men were his treasure. And then in verse 45, he uses another uh, story, that he's the merchant man who is seeking goodly pearls. And, you know, elsewhere he says that he's the one seeking the lost coin, the lost sheep, uh, etc., and again, we are to seek for him, and yet he seeks for us. So God is in search of man, and yet we are in search of him. And there is this flash moment throughout the cosmos when, when we meet. Now, he's seeking goodly pearls, and yet the point is that he's looking for lots of them. But he finds one, 46, and that's enough. Now, I think that that, again, is his explanation of his change of policy. That, okay, Israel en masse have not responded. But I found you. Yes, you little ones. I found you, and that's enough for me. This merchant man is seeking goodly pearls, but he only finds one, but that's enough. And, you know, the, the, the similarity in language with the finding of... Uh, the, the, the finding of the lost son and, and the lost coin, the lost sheep, etc. It clearly, the, the, the pearl is us, or in the first century context, was those people. Uh, the disciples whom the Lord had found. And it was of great price. And he had to sell all that he has in order to do that, in order to to get it. Now, once he got the pearl, what did he do with it? And 
a lot of the parables are, I think, intended for us to imagine how the story ends. Uh, they're left hanging to some degree. And here is a classic case. What did he do with it? It could not earn him anything. It was purely aesthetic. He sold all that he had and got it just because he loved pearls. And this one pearl was everything to him. And as he'd given up everything, all he could do was sit and look at it. It couldn't of itself earn him or do anything for him. And this is what the Lord is saying about the, the disciples. He's saying that, I found you. I was looking for lots, but I didn't find them. But I found you. And that was enough for me. This selling all that he has, this giving up of everything. It's the same words used in the parable of Matthew eighteen twenty six, where that hopelessly indebted man is sold and all that he had when he's put in prison. So then, <clears throat> this man is reduced to, to poverty, to a pauper. And that is exactly what happened to the Lord. Uh, because of his death on the cross, because of his love for us. Then going on, 47, the kingdom is like to a net that's cast into the sea, the sea of nations. And clearly, the idea is that it picked up any kind of fish, good or bad, on the idea that when they all gathered, then, as it were, the judgment will sit, just as the fishermen sit down, and they, they divide the, 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 the fish up, and they throw the bad ones away. So then this, I think the Lord is saying, is the basis of our preaching, that we are to just get people into the net. Get fish into the net, and do not bother, do not pay any attention to whether they're good fish or bad fish. This is exactly similar to the, the, the picture he gives in the parable of the, the great wedding feast that's made, and, and there's no one to come to it. So go out and pull them in. Whether they're good, bad, or what, don't pay any attention. Your job is to get them in there, and when the Lord comes, he will sort out who has a wedding garment on and who doesn't, and that's the end of it. All you've got to do is say yes, get in the net, come to the party. And that should be the picture of our preaching, because he doesn't use, for example, the, the, the picture of a man with a, with a fishing rod who's aiming and angling, as it were, to get a prize catch. No, this is dragnet fishing. Where you've got one big fishing boat that drags a net that's tied to a small dinghy. And I think that we are the small dinghy, and this is God's fishing that's dependent upon us, playing a very small but very important part, and it's just picking up anyone who's willing to come in. And again, you know, that, that is so against everything that Judaism stood for, everything that we stand for, that that is so against human nature, that we want to bring you know, the right people to the Lord. Well, you can't judge that. This is the whole point of the parable of the, the wheat and the tares, that you can't judge, you do not know who is who, all you can do is to do your part. And that's all we are doing is a small part. We are not bringing anyone, in that sense, to the truth, to the kingdom. We're just playing an accessory role. That's all we're doing. So then, these fish are gathered. And yet they're also gathered into vessels, in verse 48. 
And I think, uh, as we said earlier, the, the gathering process means that the first step that you take in response to the gospel is in fact your first step towards being gathered to the day of judgment. It gathers of every kind, verse 47, and uh, genos there, every genos. And one wonders if it means every genetic type. So that every every type, every genetic type of, of human being will have been gathered. Of course, the word can simply mean every nation or every kindred. And I think the hint is, in any case, that once persons of every nation or every kindred or every genetic type or whatever have been gathered, then the night of fishing is over and the judgment can happen and therefore the Lord's return. So again, the, the calendar date of the Lord's coming doesn't exist. This is why in Acts 1, when they say, come on Jesus, sort of give us the time, when are you coming back? What does the Lord say? He says, go and preach the gospel. Because that is what shall hasten the coming of the Lord. That is what controls it. When the gospel shall have gone to all the earth, or the world, then shall the end come. So we've, we've not been given a calendar date. We've been given a, a condition. And it's for us to go and fulfill that. And you have to ask yourself, if this is really so, that the Lord shall come when people from every genos have been gathered, and fulfilling Revelation 5.9, that at the last day <clears throat> there will be people redeemed from every nation, kindred, and tongue, if that is the, the case, then it rather follows that, um, let's put it like this, it, it is not just one specific denomination of Christianity with its uh, particular set of, of beliefs, true as they may be, uh, who shall be saved? Because it's very unlikely that, for example, with the, the set of beliefs that I personally hold and teach and preach and hold dear, uh, it's very unlikely that I and uh, those who share my beliefs would actually get people baptized and converted to Christ on that basis from every genos, uh, every kindred, uh, tongue and tribe, etc., of the whole planet. If that is the case, then the Lord's coming is, I think, some way away, and we, we've got to do a lot of work. And of course, we still all do have to do a lot of work. But my point is that I think the day is coming, when at least on the basic level of people having accepted Christ, it is getting to the point where the people from every genos have come to, to be in the net. And when it was full, then it is drawn to shore. Well, this is um, the same word, translated full, fullness in Romans 11.25 until the fullness or full number of the Gentiles be come in so that there is a number that must come in to the net and then the end shall come then the net is brought to shore and it, it can't be incidental that the only other usage of this word for shore in the synoptics is earlier in this chapter in the first verse of Matthew 13 where the crowd stood on the shore whilst the Lord taught them and he's just said that in this parable that judgment happens on the shore on the beach and I think what he's, I think the idea is that they there gathered to Jesus on the beach were as it were a judgment day and, of course, the, 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 uh, the people who are 
dividing the, the good fish from the bad sat down, it says. And again, it can't be accidental that in verses 1 and 2 of Matthew 13, it is twice stated that the Lord was teaching them sitting down whilst they were on the shore. It was as if in their response to his word there and then, they had their foretaste of judgment. And that is the same for us. That as we come before him and before his word, now we have our foretaste of judgment. It, the outcome of that day is therefore no longer such a, a mystery. Now the idea of casting the, the unclean away and, and, and keeping the good fish, I think that this would have been understood in its Jewish context by these Jewish listeners as throwing away the ritually unclean fish according to Leviticus chapter 11, the fish that couldn't be eaten. And uh, the Jewish uh, leaders of Judaism taught that the Gentiles were those cast away. And so the Lord is turning it all round, really, because he's saying that basically that Israel has been rejected uh, and that, that they are the ones that have been cast away. So he's turning it, their ideas all back upon themselves. In verse 49, so shall it be at the end of the world, the angels shall come forth and sever the wicked from amongst the just. Same word used in Matthew 25, 32, for how Jesus will separate the sheep from the goats. But unfortunately, it's used, this uh, word separate, for how the, the Jews separated the, uh, the Christians cast them out in Luke 6.22 and it's used again in Galatians 2 verse 12 where Peter separated himself from his brethren because other brethren said if you break bread with them then we'll chuck you out so he gave in, he caved in and he, broke, he wouldn't break bread with them he severed himself, cut himself off from his own brethren ok, he repented later but you can see the the danger of this, because if, for example, you cut yourself off from the sheep, you cut yourself off from the good, good fish, well, who are you then? You're a goat, or you're the, you're the unclean fish. Now, this is the, the great danger, the great danger of any view of fellowship which says that I am going to cut someone off. We have to keep that person out. Well, that person is Jesus to you. The least of his brethren are him. You don't want them. You don't want him. And if you're cutting yourself off, you're severing yourself from the sheep, from the from the clean fish, then who are you? You're in, there's only two categories in all this. There's not a third category. You're in the other category. Because you put yourself there. That's why I plead with people, really I plead, to not pay attention to all these demands of, of fellowship that are made and disfellowshipping this one and so forth well finally uh, verse 55 they hear all this and they say look is not this the carpenter's son isn't his mother called Mary well <clears throat> I think it's one of the most beautiful pictures of the Lord's perfection and the beauty of his character that he who never committed any sin throughout his life he who never omitted any act of righteousness, when he stands up and basically says, I'm Messiah, 
the people that he'd grown up with turn around and say, no, you can't be, you're just an ordinary bloke. For one thing, that is a great uh, essay in his utter humanity, and also it's an essay in the beauty of his perfection, because as soon as you and I even start to try to be a little bit more righteous than the people around us, people get very resentful, they notice it. Whereas the utter perfection of Jesus in his character, and as I say, both no sins of commission, no sins of omission, for 33 and a half years, all of that went unnoticed by the people who knew him best. Those that he had grown up with and been with. That's just absolutely surpassing, I find, in its, in its beauty. So then, these people who knew him were confronted uh, by him. They struggled with his humanity. They were basically saying, you can't be Messiah because you're human. And you know, that is exactly the problem which the Trinitarians make. He just can't be human. He couldn't have been like that. I remember talking literally all night with a Trinitarian once, very, very sincere guy. And at the end of it, he said, so you're telling me that this Jesus was of our nature, but he didn't sin. I said, yeah, that's right. And he said, Look, I can't believe that. I haven't got the faith to believe that. And that is the nub of the problem with the Trinity and the Jesus is God rubbish that, that, that is taught. These people have got that wrong view because they do not have the faith to believe in the Son of God as a perfect being. So they say, oh yeah, well, he was perfect, but he could have been human. I can't believe that. I've got enough faith. So of course he was God. No. And that's exactly the problem that, his, that these people had. They said, but you can't be Messiah because you're human. We know you. We know your mum. And that was the problem. And that's the problem today. That's the problem we all have. It's the same problem when we ask ourselves, well, well, why can't I do better? Why can't I be like Jesus? Come up with all these wonderful theories about human nature that are, poor me, I can't because I'm, I'm a human. I've only got human nature. Yeah, look, whatever you say about human nature... You say about the Lord Jesus. And whatever you say about the Lord Jesus, you, you say about human nature. Because he had human nature, but he was sinless. And this is the difficulty we have in grasping this. That he showed us the huge potential and possibility which there is in being human. That he who had human nature was perfect. And that's a huge challenge to everybody who has got human nature. Now, it says here, the carpenter's son. But in Mark 6.3, which is the parallel record, they say, is not this the carpenter? So putting the records together, what did they say? They said, this is the carpenter, the son of the carpenter. So he followed the profession of his father. But what does carpenter mean? This is this Greek word, tekton. Well, it, it doesn't mean a, a carpenter. It, it means a manual worker. And Actually, the tecton were a class of people, and they were lower than the peasants. The peasants had their own land. But a lot of people were losing their land at the time of the first century um, because of the, the, the taxation system uh, and the local Jewish authorities insisting uh, that they could get by various uh, 
misinterpretations of the, of the law, 20% of agricultural income. And then on top of that, the Romans were adding all their taxes, and then there was a land tax, and there was a 12% crop tax on produce, uh, etc. And because of these, this huge burden of taxation, a lot of peasants were losing their land, and they became tecton. They became manual workers. So Jesus was absolutely from the poorest of the poor, if he was a tecton. Now, this is why, this is why um, Jesus really could talk about poverty, because he really was poor. He was from the sort of people who really do have to pray, give us this day the bread for today, because really that's where they were up to. They were on the absolute edge of survival. And again, you see beauty in that, that the Son of God was born, not just poor, but it seems to me if he was a tecton, uh, the lowest, the lowest class. And his mother is called Mary, we read here. Well, usually uh, men were called in first century Palestine by their father's name. Jesus, son of Joseph, Jesus ben Joseph. Uh, but to call somebody by their mother's name was really implying that you are illegitimate. And that's, I think, what they're doing here. You can't be Messiah because you're illegitimate. You're Jesus, son of Mary, not even son of Joseph. And I think that if Jesus was categorized as illegitimate and the son of his mother rather than the son of a father, then this would have meant that he wasn't allowed to actually, legally allowed, to uh, uh, suddenly enter the temple or to marry a true Israelite. So then he was seen as a stranger. He was seen as someone absolutely on the edge. And so, because of all that, he was able and is able to identify with every single one of us in all our rejection and all our complexes or whatever. There is nobody who can truly say, there's nobody who knows how I feel. Maybe there is not on this earth. But there is someone, and he is Jesus, and he is in heaven, and he is for real. And he had to go through all this wide range of human experience, being a tecton, as I say, wrongly translated, I, I believe a carpenter, uh, but from that disenfranchised, landless, marginalized peasant class, uh, called the, uh, the, the son of Mary, despised as illegitimate. Um, in the Talmud, uh, uh, there's this uh, section that, that talks about Mary that says she was a hairdresser and she was a divorcee. You know, this is absolute working class with all the distractions that come from living in poverty. And yet he rose above it. And this Lord is our Lord. And he is the one who sees deeply and penetratingly into the hearts of every one of us. And none of us now can say that nobody knows how I feel. Because there is one who went through all this so that none of us can ever say that. Thank you.